In the year 1061, in Saxon England, during the reign of Edward the Confessor, in a small village lying in the valley of the river Stifke in northwest Norfolk, Richeldis de Faverche, widow of the Lord of the Manor of Walsingham, had a vision of our Blessed Lady. She'd been praying with great fervour that she might be blessed with the task of doing something special in honour of God's Mother. During this vision, Richeldis was taken in spirit to Nazareth and shown the place where the Archangel Gabriel had appeared to Mary at the Annunciation. Make good note of the measurements of this house, my daughter, Our Lady told Richeldis. I want you to build an exact replica at Walsingham in my honour. Whoever goes there to seek me shall find help. Twice more Our Lady appeared to Richeldis when the same thing happened. The widow then proceeded to carry out Mary's instructions to build a copy of the Holy House. She put the matter into the hands of skilled carpenters. But there was just one problem, where to place the completed work. After praying all night about it, Richeldis noticed the next morning that there had been a heavy fall of dew. In a nearby meadow, there were two perfect oblongs of about equal size which had remained dry. That, she thought, is the answer. But which area do we use? They stood at least 200 feet apart. Richeldis eventually decided on the one nearby where two wells had sprung up. But no matter how hard they tried, the workmen couldn't fit the holy house, which measured 23 feet 6 inches by 12 feet 10 inches, on its foundations. Nothing went right for them. So they went to Richeldis. She, once more, spent the whole night in prayer. In the morning, not only did she find the holy house erected, but it stood on the other of the dew-free spots. When the carpenters examined the planks and joints, they found that everything fitted perfectly. Skilled as they were, they admitted that such work was above the standard of which they were capable. That was the first miracle. Others abounded and there were many cures as people came in pilgrimage to seek Our Lady's help. With the passing of years, many came to visit the Holy House and pay homage there to Our Lady, now represented by a beautiful statue. So constant was the stream of pilgrims that Richelde's son, Geoffrey de Faverge, on his mother's death, drew up a deed for certain endowments and left his chaplain Edwin in charge and went on pilgrimage to the Holy Land. He left instructions to found a priory and put the care of the sanctuary into the hands of some religious order. It's likely that at first secular canons preceded the canons regular of St. Augustine who built their priory there in the year 1153. Within ten years of the establishment of the priory, William, brother of King Henry II, became a benefactor of the shrine. Between the years 1226 and 1272, Henry II became the first monarch to visit Walsingham. He did so at least eleven times, and it was he who placed a crown of gold on the statue of Our Lady. The arrival of kings and queens and princes ensured both the national and international reputation of the shrine, as did the fact that pilgrims from many countries were discouraged from going to the Holy Land because of the infidel. As soon it was to rank with Rome, Jerusalem and Compostela as one of the four great shrines of medieval Christendom. 
and the only one dedicated to Our Lady. But the real reason for the popularity of Walsingham was that Mary was keeping her promise to comfort and help all who sought her there. It wasn't just the rich who came. In the year 1346, the Franciscans built a friary with accommodation for poorer pilgrims. And so famous was Walsingham that even the road from London became one of England's main highways, marked by pilgrim chapels and hostelries, and called the Walsingham Way. The cluster of stars, known as the Galaxy or Milky Way, was also renamed the Walsingham Way for it was said to point across the heavens the route to the shrine. There were many other famous pilgrim routes. The ones from the north passed through the busy port of King's Lynn, where pilgrims from abroad would join them. Together they'd spend some time at the chapel of Our Lady of the Red Mount before setting out for Walsingham. Most pilgrims would stop at the chapel of Houghton Le Clay, called the Slipper Chapel the last and most important of the pilgrim chapels. There they would have their sins forgiven, attend mass, and then walk barefooted the remaining mile to the priory. The chapel at Houghton was dedicated to St Catherine of Alexandria, the patron saint of pilgrims, and also of those knights who guarded the holy places, including Nazareth. Similarly, equidistant from Nazareth, there was another chapel also dedicated to St Catherine. According to tradition, Catherine was buried on Mount Sinai, where God appeared to Moses in the burning bush and asked him to remove his shoes before stepping upon holy ground. However, the most likely explanation why this beautiful medieval chapel at Houghton was called the Slipper Chapel is that the word slipper comes from an old English word slipe, which means a way through. And this was the final point of departure on the way through to the graceful and elegant Priory Church and its chief glory, the Holy House. Henry VIII was the last monarch to stop at the Slipper Chapel to confess his sins, take off his shoes and walk the final mile barefoot to the Holy House. He was a regular pilgrim, like his forebears, and contributed generously to the upkeep of the shrine. He also paid the wages of a priest to say Mass for him there and for a candle to burn continually before Our Lady's statue. The priory, which was reconstructed in the early 15th century, was indeed a gem of Gothic architecture, with its angel roof and rich traceries, its perpendicular arches and shapely buttresses. The high altar was by the great east window and the Reredos depicted the Archangel Gabriel greeting Mary, and this central motif was flanked by portraits of St Edward and St Catherine on one side, and St Edmund and St Margaret on the other. A small chapel made of wainscot on the north side of the nave enshrined the Holy House. There, in the light of the King's candle and myriads of others, could be seen the small altar and the reflection of precious gems, gold and silver, shining out on all sides. The statue of Our Lady of Walsingham was in the corner of the Holy House, by the altar on the Gospel side. 
She sat on a high-backed throne, and the gold crown she wore was a Saxon one. On her knee was seated her son. In his left hand he held a book of the Gospels, while his right hand was held out in protection and blessing. His mother held a lily, and her feet rested upon a precious stone which bore the resemblance of a toad, which represented evil. The priory itself joined the chapel on the south side, the entry being through a door from the chapter house. The priory was typical of many such of its time, dominated by central cloisters, though the refectory, graced by three pointed arches leading to the reader's ambo, was its most noted feature. It's hard to believe that such a fine fabric as this should be so wantonly desecrated and raised to the ground. But that was the fate of the priory and its church. The sovereign, King Henry VIII, unable to secure his divorce from Catherine of Aragon, decided to take the whole affair into his own hands and take to himself the powers that rightly belonged to the Pope. In 1534, the Act of the King's Supremacy was passed, stating that the King should be accepted as the only and supreme head of the Church in England. Two years later, the final Act stated that any layman or ecclesiastic holding office should take an oath renouncing the Bishop of Rome and his authority under the penalty of high treason. Thus, like so many others, the custodians of the shrine of Our Lady of Walsingham became helpless victims of the King's will. But even their signing of the Oath of Supremacy didn't override Henry's desire to plunder and fill his coffers at the expense of the Church. As one of the most frequented shrines in Christendom and guardian of priceless treasures, the heritage of centuries, Walsingham became a prime target. But there was something more in the mind of the reformers. As long as the shrine of Our Lady remained inviolate, the old religion would still have its sway. So once English began to replace Latin in the churches, a common table set up as an altar, festivals and processions banned, and the hierarchy moved to the king's persuasion, then Walsingham had to go. It was just a question of time. The suppression, first of all of the smaller monasteries, was so unpopular that an army of 30,000 men marched on Doncaster to make representations to the king there. Within months, the leaders of this march, which became to be known as the Pilgrimage of Grace, were publicly executed and their followers similarly dealt with. There were those in Norfolk too who made their disaffection known. But in Henry's England there was no such thing as freedom of speech, and the leaders of what became known as the Walsingham Conspiracy were summarily tried for treason and executed in various towns of the county. Walsingham was chosen for the execution of Nicholas Milam, the sub-prior of the Austin's Canon, and George Guysborough. This was undoubtedly to strike terror into those who guarded the shrine and to forestall any further opposition. Both men were executed on the hill overlooking the priory, which became known as the Martyr's Field. The surrender of the shrine took place after, with the celebrated statue of Our Lady of Walsingham taken from the Holy House and publicly burned at Chelsea, along with other revered images from churches and houses up and down the land. The Holy House itself was torn down and its treasures confiscated. The Priory Church stripped of lead, furniture and other accoutrements and disposed of in lots at auction.
The Priory grounds were given to a man called Thomas Sidney and his wife by King Henry. But little became of the church and priory as successive generations carried away the stones to build their own houses. All that remains today to remind us of the former glory that was the shrine of Our Lady of Walsingham is the lofty gable of the east window, though by the site of the west tower is the bare stone of its supporting pillars and a remnant of the stone wall seat. The two holy wells survived also and the site of the holy house is marked by a raised mound to the north side of the kept lawn. There remains too of the refectory. Best preserved of all, however, is the stone and flint gatehouse, which leads to the Priory from the present High Street, and part of the ancient wall with its reconstructed Knight's Gate, which can be seen opposite the Anglican Shrine. The dissolution of the former Shrine of Walsingham didn't entirely mean the end of devotion to Our Lady there. For many in the land, including Norfolk itself, still sought favours of Heaven's Queen. In 1539, a woman from Wells was apprehended for her devotion and put in the stocks. And from what the local magistrate said at the time, there must have been many others who came to Walsingham. I cannot but perceive, he said, that the image is not yet out of their heads. Devotion to Our Lady of Walsingham was therefore outlawed, as indeed was any contact with the old religion and allegiance to the Pope. Strict penal laws were exacted against Catholics, making it a charge of high treason for any priest to enter the country, say mass or hear confessions, and a felony for any layperson to hide or shelter them. Many died for their beliefs, among whom were three Norfolk men, St. Robert Southwell from nearby Horsham St. Faith, Philip Hard, eldest son of Thomas Hard, fourth Duke of Norfolk, and Henry Walpole from Docking. Though much was done to stamp out the ancient faith, Mass was held in secret, as the priest's hiding hole at Oxborough Hall attests. The May Queen was crowned and people danced round the Maypole, though with succeeding generations the origin of this practice was increasingly forgotten. And local folklore has it that over the years pilgrims were often found praying in the neglected but still intact slipper chapel at Houghton le Clay. It wasn't until 1829 that the Catholic Emancipation Acts paved the way for the return of the old religion to England. 1850 saw the re-establishment of the Catholic hierarchy with Cardinal Wiseman, the first Catholic Metropolitan Archbishop, in the newly created See of Westminster since the Reformation. It was soon after this that a clamour was heard to restore public devotion to Our Lady of Walsingham and to other Marian shrines up and down the country. Two pilgrim chapels, the heritage of the golden age of Walsingham, still survived. One was the slipper chapel at Houghton the Clay, and the other the shrine and chapel of Our Lady of the Red Mount at King's Lynn. Both had ended up as stables for cattle, not so inappropriate when one thinks of where our Saviour was born. But with the establishment of Catholic parish at King's Lynn, the parish priest, Father Rigglesworth, found that both these chapels were in his parish and he felt stirred to do something to revive the ancient devotion. 
As there was only one Catholic resident in Walsingham, and the Priory lands no longer the property of the Catholic Church, Father Rigglesworth decided to add to the church he hoped to build at King's Lynn a new chapel to Our Lady of Walsingham, which, like the old, would be built apart from the church itself and make it a facsimile of the Holy House. Pope Leo XIII responded positively to the idea when Father Rigglesworth approached him. Furthermore, as the form of the original statue wasn't then known, the Pope chose as a model for the new statue that of Santa Maria in Cosmedin, and it was made in Oberammergau. The Pope blessed the statue on February 6, 1897, and its enthronement at King's Lynn took place on August 19 of the same year, by which time the new Church of the Annunciation had been completed. The next day saw the first pilgrimage to Walsingham since the dissolution of the shrine. Father Rigglesworth and his curate, Father Philip Fletcher, who was later to found the Guild of Our Lady of Ransom, whose aim it is to bring the faith back to England, led a small party there. They prayed outside the slipper chapel and got permission to visit the site of the old priory. But both parish priest and curate longed for the day when the shrine could be restored to Walsingham itself. This was the intention also of a Miss Charlotte Boyd, a devout Anglican who some three years before the pilgrimage from King's Lynn purchased the Slipper Chapel. She intended to set up an Anglican convent there, but before the negotiations to purchase were completed, she became a Catholic. The property was at once offered to the Benedictine monks at Downside. Miss Boyd restored the chapel beautifully, but during the years that remained to her, little else happened. The main initiative in bringing back Mary to her ancestral home was taken by the Anglican, the Reverend Alfred Hope Patton. In 1921, he was appointed vicar to the parish church of St. Mary and All Saints. He had a statue built of Mary, just like the one depicted on the old Priory seal, and placed it in his church. His real intention there was to build a holy house. And this he was able to do when, in 1931, he bought the site of the present Anglican shrine, which stands north of the Priory grounds opposite the Knight's Gate. It wasn't until Bishop Ewens was consecrated Bishop of Northampton in 1934 that a real revival of Catholic devotion began. On August the 15th of that same year, he celebrated the first Mass in the Slipper Chapel since the Reformation, and had a new statue which, following the example of Hope Patton, was based on the medieval seal enthroned there. On the 19th of that same month, which coincided with the anniversary of the first pilgrimage from King's Lynn, Cardinal Bourne led a gathering of some 12,000 souls. This was a truly auspicious occasion, for in the presence of so many of the English hierarchy, he blessed the Slipper Chapel and its statue and declared Walsingham once again as England's national shrine to Our Lady. He was the first cardinal to visit Walsingham since the days of Henry VIII, when Wolsey went there to seek relief for a stomach ailment. Father Bruno Scott James became the first resident priest, building a new sacristy 
and a chapel to the Holy Spirit adjacent to the Slipper Chapel. He also provided an open-air altar with shelter for large pilgrimage groups. His good work was followed by that of Canon Gerald Hume. On September the 8th, 1938, Bishop Ewens re-consecrated the Slipper Chapel and with it the Chapel to the Holy Spirit, linked up now by a beautiful flint cloister. When the Second World War began, Walsingham, because of its position near the coast, was declared out of bounds to all but military personnel. And a notable feature of this was that members of the American forces serving in East Anglia came often to Walsingham to pray to Our Lady. And after the war, they introduced Our Lady of Walsingham to the peoples of the United States, where today there's a considerable devotion to her. Post-war England witnessed the famous pilgrimage of prayer and penance, in reparation for the atrocities, sufferings, evils and wanton loss of life of the Second World War. It was the climax of a 14-day trek from 13 towns in England and Wales, with each group carrying a 9-foot-high, 95-pound solid oak cross. Their arrival in Walsingham on July 16, 1948, coincided with the national pilgrimage of the Union of Catholic Mothers. The 14 crosses now form the outdoor stations of the cross seen in the meadow by the Slipper Chapel. A 15th has been added, depicting the resurrection. What was also most memorable on that day was that Cardinal Griffin, in compliance with the wishes of Our Lady of Fatima, consecrated England to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Another most significant date in Walsingham's revival was the Feast of the Assumption in the year 1954, which also happened to be Marian year. Archbishop O'Hara, the Apostolic Delegate, on behalf of Pope Pius XII, crowned the statue of Our Lady of Walsingham on the site of the original shrine in the Priory Gardens. During the procession back to the Slipper Chapel for its enthronement, two doves, which had flown there, remained at the statue's feet. With the crowning of the statue of Our Lady of Walsingham on behalf of the church in the Catholic shrine and the building of a holy house in the Anglican one, Our Lady was well and truly back in her Norfolk home. Since then, pilgrimages have abounded, and these include the annual joint pilgrimage held between Anglicans and Catholics when the procession proceeds from the Slipper Chapel to the Anglican shrine. Diocesan pilgrimages, too, add to the hundreds of thousands who come here each year. It was soon apparent, with the growth of Walsingham, that better facilities were required to greet the pilgrim. In February of 1968, Canon Gerard Hume was moved to Sheringham after 17 years of Trojan work at the shrine, and the Maris fathers then took over, and they've been responsible with the Maris sisters for the pilgrim centre on the meadow beside the Slipper Chapel. Now we have the beautiful chapel of Our Lady of Reconciliation, built of flint, brick and pan tiles, and in a typical Norfolk style. The chapel, which can hold up to 700 people, can be opened out to reveal the altar to all in the grounds, and it was blessed by Cardinal Hume on the 6th of September 1981 and consecrated on May the 22nd, 1982, by Bishop Clark. Splendid as was the consecration of the new chapel for all who love Walsingham, one could never forget that it was in the same year and month that the Holy Father, Pope John Paul II, made his pastoral visit to Britain. And Walsingham wasn't forgotten. Far from it. 
at the Papal Mass in Wembley, the statue of Our Lady was brought from Walsingham and placed on the altar. It was an occasion of great triumph, unlike the previous time when the original was taken to London and desecrated by Henry's men. During the Mass, the Pope made reference to Walsingham. In England, the Diary of Mary, the faithful for centuries have made pilgrimages to her shrine at Walsingham. Today, Walsingham comes to Wembley, and the statue of Our Lady of Walsingham, present here, lifts our minds to meditate on our mother. She obeyed the will of God fearlessly and gave birth to the Son of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. Faithful at the foot of the cross, she then waited in prayer for the Holy Spirit to descend on the infant church. It is Mary who will teach us how to be silent, how to listen to the voice of God in the midst of a busy and noisy world. It is Mary who will help us to find time for prayer. Through the rosary, the great gospel prayer, she will help us to know her son. We need to live as she did in the presence of God, raising our hearts and minds to him in our daily activities and worries. May your hearts become schools for prayer for both parents and children. God should be the living heart of family prayer. Again, it is Mary who teaches us how, through her obedience, she accepted the whole of God's plan for her life, and in doing so, she achieved greatness. Blessed is she who believed that the promise made her by the Lord would be fulfilled. The Pope's words truly echo the message of Walsingham. The Holy House brings to mind not only the Annunciation, but the birth of our Saviour, his nurturing and upbringing in Nazareth. And how indeed in the midst of the daily round of activity, hardship and worry, one can still turn in silence to God and listen to his voice. Mary is our great exemplar. More important still, she is our mother, and she wishes to mother us as she did Jesus, so that we can become more like him. That's why at Walsingham, in the statue copied from the prior's great seal, she shows forth her child seated on her knee. She presents him, gives him to us. The child blesses with one hand and holds a Bible in the other. God's word is all. From it flows renewal and conversion. From it flows the power to do God's will as Mary demonstrated in her life. We can imagine that she spent many an hour in the Holy House reciting whole passages of Scripture to her son, passages she had learnt as a child in the temple at Jerusalem. She would have taught him to ponder on the beauty of God's word, and that same word is waiting for our fiat too. God's word comes to us in its most personal and powerful form in the Mass. The Eucharist is the centre of our faith. It is the root of our religion, our power and our grace. It's the highlight of any pilgrimage to Walsingham, the pinnacle of each event. Such was the case in the days of old, when one can imagine the splendour of such a celebration in the Gothic Priory. But before going on the way through to Walsingham to take part in the Mass, it was usual to have one's sins forgiven at the Slipper Chapel. On that same site today is the appropriately named Chapel of Reconciliation. The uncleansed heart is the source of all our evil. Walsingham is a call to conversion, to reawaken our faith, 
to look again at those areas of unlove, hardness, unforgiveness, and to leave them all behind, so that reconciled with God our Father and with our brothers and sisters, we may approach the altar of God to deepen our love for him and to celebrate our unity. We are reminded too when we were first of all freed from the power of darkness with our sins forgiven, for the font situated not far from the chapel of the Holy Spirit is a vivid reminder of our baptism. It was then that we became a new creation through water and the Holy Spirit. Nowadays, after their baptism, when adults are received into the church, they are also confirmed and so filled with the power of the Holy Spirit to bear witness to God's love before the world. But perhaps a more emphatic sign of dying with Christ and entering the tomb with him to rise to newness of life can be seen in the Anglican shrine. Beside the holy house, iron gates mark the entrance to the holy well, which was unearthed when Father Hope Patton laid the foundations of the holy house in 1931. There one descends stone steps to the font, where the pilgrim drinks the water and is sprinkled with it. This service of sprinkling is a feature of the Anglican shrine and affords the pilgrim an opportunity to rededicate him or herself to God by renewing their baptismal promises before ascending further stone steps leading from the font. Thus, conversion and renewal are keynotes in a visit to Walsingham, and the penance and sacrifice that are encouraged dispose us better to do his will and overcome our weakness. The most notable of these are the Holy Mile from the Slipper Chapel to the Priory, which some people still walk barefooted, and also there are other stations of the cross. The cross stands at the very centre of Christianity. We were saved by the cross, and it is from the cross that all graces flow. But it is also the greatest sign of humility and dying to self-esteem that could possibly be. It was the way our Saviour chose to die, in pain, abject, and with utter indignity. The crucified Saviour cries out to us that the life of grace, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, can only come about when we die to self, when we think of nothing of ourselves, as Mary did. He has pulled down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. Mary is God's lowly handmaid because she is devoid of self and concerned only at doing God's will. Therefore, she is open to grace. She is full of grace. She wants us to look at the cross and die to ourselves too so that we may have life. She wants us to cast aside all pride and pretense, all self-righteousness, so that we will be disposed to accept Jesus, her Son. And we find him through the scriptures, prayer, sacrifice, the mass and sacraments. The same message Mary always preached at her shrine for the seven bands which encircle the pillars of the throne upon which she sits, three on one and four on the other, represent the seven sacraments. All these things we know, but we need to be reawakened. Mary does this for us at Walsingham. There we can feel the love and embrace of our mother, of the one who promised, whoever seeks me here shall find comfort and help. But among our prayers and entreaties, we begin to see the world and ourselves in a clearer perspective.
here in the quiet, distant and uncomplicated Norfolk countryside, in a place hallowed by the presence of prayer and pilgrims through the centuries, we learned those basic truths which have somehow become obscure in the busy, noisy and active world. Yes, the comfort and help is ours, but what Our Lady is really saying is, seek first the kingdom of God and everything will be added to you. On January the 1st, 1987, Pope John Paul II announced a Marian year, a year dedicated to Mary, which would begin on Pentecost Sunday and end on the Feast of the Assumption in 1988. It would usher in an Advent period when, with Mary, we would prepare for the bimillennium of the birth of Jesus. The Holy Father wanted the New Age to open with a renewal of faith and a rebirth of Jesus. And with Mary, it can. We are to be like St. John at the foot of the cross who took Mary into his house. She is our mother. To be called to Walsingham is a special grace. We don't go as sightseers, but as pilgrims. A pilgrim is a prophet, someone called by God and sent to his people. Mary tells us, I have chosen you, I have called you, I need you, I want you to pray. You can't speak God's word to others unless you pray. My son Jesus must not be a blur in your life, but at its very heart. The Pope's message at Wembley was that through the rosary, the great gospel prayer, Mary will help us to know her son. We need to live as she did in the presence of God, raising our hearts and minds to him in our daily activities and worries. May your hearts become schools of prayer for both parents and children. God should be the living heart of family prayer. When we leave Walsingham, we're not to leave Mary behind. We are to be like St. John who took her into his house. She comes with us into our homes, parishes and communities. After all, England is her land. We are blessed with one of the oldest Marian shrines in Christendom and the greatest in medieval times. And now the ancient routes to Walsingham echo once again to the sound of modern transport bringing people in their tens of thousands to be in a most special way with their mother. Walsingham takes its place as our national shrine and once again Mary is honoured there. Masses of Our Lady are said, her statue carried aloft, and there are torchlight processions, the rosary and the Walsingham litany. In other parts of the country, too, her ancient shrines, as well as her more modern ones, witness a remarkable return to devotion. This, after all, is her land. This is her place. This is her diary.